obviously modern slavery and slavery as a concept has been age old you know we looked at prehistoric slavery which we thought had been eradicated but today it exists as contemporary slavery there are 40.3 million victims in the world today which is really shocking in the you know the 21st century Hello and welcome. I'm Shiza, your host of Reinvision Business and co-founder of UpEffects. If you're new to our work, over the last five years, we've loved amplifying and supporting business models that prioritize equity, conservation, and economic empowerment. We're now advancing this work through our Reinvision Business podcast. This series will highlight the emerging need for responsible trade that uplifts communities frequently left behind. In each episode, we'll invite thought leaders to deconstruct our current systems, and with their help, we'll spotlight models that are re-envisioning business. Together, we'll unearth a blueprint for an economy redesign. Over 40 million people are victims of modern slavery. In this conversation, I'm joined by Nayantara Sriram, founder and CEO of Supply Unchained. She has a Bachelor of Laws and a Master of International Development Law and Human Rights from the University of Warwick, with a thesis specialism on the drivers of modern slavery. She has read Supply Chain Management at the University of Cambridge and previously worked with the World Health Organization, Government Legal Department and Special Advocates Support Office. She is currently the founder and CEO of Supply Unchained, a social enterprise that provides management consulting and regulatory compliance services to tackle modern slavery and supply chains. In this conversation, we discuss what modern slavery looks like in today's economy and the role that businesses play in perpetuating enslavement across communities. We also discuss the role of policies, businesses and individuals in eliminating modern slavery from supply chains. Supply and change is at the forefront of leading other businesses to become responsible actors in the economy. In this conversation, we hear how Nayantara and her team are helping re-envision business. Welcome to Re-envision Business, Nayantara. It is such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much. You're doing some really interesting work within the modern slavery space and It would be great to just start off with an understanding of how you found yourself working in this field and what were you up to prior to starting Supply Unchained? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on this program, Shiza. So Supply Unchained is a social enterprise and I'd say the soul, the mission, which we are working very hard to to fulfill, I would say, is eradicating, tackling this huge phenomenon, which is modern slavery. And how we're looking at doing that particularly is from the business perspective. So looking at helping to prevent and reduce these risks within supply chains. Just taking it back a step, why I was particularly so interested in this area obviously modern slavery and slavery as a concept has been age old you know we looked at prehistoric slavery which we thought had been eradicated but today it exists as contemporary slavery there are 40.3 million victims in the world today which is really shocking in the you know the 21st century so my story is 
I was always interested in human rights. I have a background in law. I did my master's in international development law and human rights. And that was after working at the World Health Organization. I focused my thesis, I would say, on modern slavery. And in doing so, I was very moved by, you know, what it is that slavery was, because it's such a vast scope, you know, from child labor to human trafficking, debt bondage, and to name just a few. And particularly looking at what the problem is, not just in the UK, but globally, what it is that's causing these issues to occur, and then the consequences of that as well. So um, that in mind, and seeing so much in the press today because modern slavery you do see it in the media all the time um huge retail companies um various sectors being um, somehow tied up in exploitation somewhere down their supply chain whether that's you know in various regions of the world but they have no knowledge of that when you know potentially signing on to these suppliers which, which is really worrying because not only is it a huge legal risk for them, but it is, you know, a fundamental violation of human rights. So so I think those are the the kind of the key drivers between, um, you know, what started me out in this journey and an overarching, um, I would say, aim and life's mission, as you put it, um, to to prevent and tackle this, this heinous crime. What industries do you feel it's more prevalent and are there any businesses that you see as a norm I know fast fashion businesses are normally known for being involved in such contracts but are there some other industries where it's quite prevalent too yeah definitely you you really did hit that on the head there um consumables retail as you've mentioned is is a huge sector others would be construction, agriculture, to name but a few, you know, but as as the law, I would say, evolves, we are looking at different ways and different ways to combat this. But I say that supply chains, you know, you find them across sectors, and that's not just in the private sector, but also in public sector procurement. So for example, we do We've done talks also on the NHS and with COVID and, you know, where these PPE and where surgical equipment comes from. You wouldn't think that exploitation might occur in the process of a medical or a healthcare uh, procurement line. But these are issues which which can also be taken into consideration, which may not have been um, prior to which. But, yeah, I think um, largely really retail, construction, agriculture, but there is a scope. And I think unless further investigation is done into different sectors, you know, we we may see changes and trends. And I understand that some supply chains are understandably a lot more complex than others. So um, if we take, you know, uh, global supply chains as an example, where there are so many different moving pieces and then different stakeholders involved in the process, can you help us understand what these supply chains may look like and what challenges basically um, uh, these supply chains 
and keeps them from um, identifying and addressing modern slavery. So I know that you use the NHS supply chain as an example. Um, can you help elaborate a little bit about what is involved in the creation and the maintenance of these supply chains? Yeah, I think the scope of, you know, the question and supply chain management as a whole is is a very vast one. But in terms of le- regulatory compliance and monitoring within a supply chain, there are various things that, you know, a company could do to try and mitigate their risks. Although it's it's very hard, I would say, to to know the entire supply chain at the outset without actually owning it. But having said that, being able to put steps in place to um, understand who their suppliers are, what the first tier level of suppliers are at at a minimum, putting things in place to um, ensure they have given standards, um, which then, you know, bigger companies can impose on suppliers within their chain. Um, being able to to trace this and there are various ways in which they could do that using um, you know new technologies of supply chain mapping for example or you know if if a product wanted to know exactly where something had been you could use things going forward such as blockchain um, which would have a stamp of everywhere that it's gone and this is you know something that's very new in development, but but an interesting field. But particularly from a legal and regulatory point of view, which is more what we focus on, is is getting those key policies in place um, to make sure that they have something on ethical trade, on procurement and labor rights, not only just here for their employees, but for anything within their supply chain, which, you know, is a huge part of any deal that that they will then get involved in not not just for optics but you know for actually any business for investment to be moved into them for investors to want to move capital into a business they need to know that the risks is prevented so so i think in terms of of doing it it's a it's a very vast scope but there are certain things that a company could do to to try and alleviate as much as possible um, risks within their supply chain, but also to to ensure that their their policies are ethical. And obviously, a business could set some ethical policies, but then there's a bigger um, policy that's really needed here, which is on a local and international level. Are such policies in existence that um, are helping tackle modern slavery in these supply chains? Yeah, and at the national level here in the UK, there's the Modern Slavery Act 2015. So again, it's very new legislation and in terms of its implementation, it's very much in its infancy. It's only since this year, 2021, a lot of the provisions become mandatory. Um, So with that in mind, yes, there is something in the UK which finally has a bit of teeth, I'd say, um, to hold companies accountable to say, if you are not compliant, we as the government, the UK government are going to publish a list of non-compliant companies. We are um, you know, going to impose fines, penalties on you. Um, 
and potentially liability in the in the sense of injunctions which could potentially freeze their assets until they comply so that's obviously a big move in the right direction in the UK since this year um on an international level there is for example in terms of human trafficking the Palermo protocol there are international labor organization um guidelines um and we're seeing as well the US and Australia also have similar policies to the UK um for example the Australian Modern Slavery Act of 2018 and in the US and California in particular the California Transparency and Supply Chains Act um which also has this policy which requires big businesses and that in in those two jurisdictions over 100 um million US dollars and Australian dollar respectively need to comply with this but i would say it's it's not only the ones that um are required by law that should be doing it you know voluntary voluntary opting in in a sense should should also become norm and and more practice but i think it's something that's going to grow as the years go on given then how new this legislation is and, and um the cases we're seeing um and and the level of impact but it's really how much consumers as you know drivers of the market can make businesses and companies do this so that you know then they understand this is what we need to do to to sustain as a business and and to be ethical so i think um there's a combination of factors but the law is going to keep developing even though there is something in place i would say it needs to grow in terms of how much weight it has and its impact in terms of actually being enforced yeah i really like the idea of even smaller organizations taking steps to voluntarily opt into um making sure that they're taking measures and um are um actively steering clear of any organizations and suppliers that may be um engaged in such activities i'm curious to hear just given in your hat as the founder of supply unchained are there any steps that you would um recommend to new enterprises that are starting out um that could you know want to explore this field a little better and want a better understanding of how they could be more mindful of steering clear of such suppliers and activities where can one start yeah i think in terms of resources um supply and chained actually delivers training e training and you know webinars as well as in person training when all is well so i think that's a good starting point for a, for a smaller business to understand the overarching issues and how that might apply to them um in actually putting those in place i would i would be looking first at supplier um questionnaires due diligence audits as a starting point um and investigating further into that if you are a smaller organization because inevitably yes it might be the bigger organizations which now have to comply but that doesn't mean going forward you know it it's not going to be 
a smaller and smaller threshold in terms of compliance or the bigger organizations impose certain things for them. So so definitely um, something they should consider. Yes, but I would say training, looking at available resources online and obviously coming to us as you know, one of the thought leaders in all modern slavery compliance and seeing how we can best help them as well in terms of understanding their governance procedures, their policies, what, you know, might be good to target for them and in particular um, mitigation actions which could be taken to, to prevent risk, but also to ensure ethical trading is occurring to the best of their ability as well. And um, you know, we are working with a, closely with a barrister's set, which is uh, our partner, and, um, you know, providing a legal opinion on that as well. So it gives it that that layer of um, expertise in, in adding value. And I think as a startup ourselves and as a social enterprise, we we are open to working with, with different people at different levels, you know, understanding um, the different constraints they might have. I know that you're doing really, really incredible work in this space. And you just mentioned that you're also an early stage social enterprise and starting up at the moment. What are some challenges that you've run into within this sector? And um, I imagine that this work and from what I've seen in the social enterprise space, it's not being done on the scale that it has been needed as a solution. And so um, what has been your experience working within this field and setting up Supply Unchained? Yeah, I think starting any organization is is no easy task. It's no nine to five job that you're secure and, um, you know, you can expect something to come on your desk. And I think it's it's a mixture between having a lot of kind of resilience being able to understand when um, one thing might not work out, something else will in the future. And that's really putting in the determination and getting a good team in place. And I think I've been very lucky to be able to work with some exceedingly bright and driven people on my team and our partners as well. So I think that's been a huge um, asset to, to what we've been able to achieve and um, I would say, I guess the baseline of it is having the understanding what what it is the problem is and being able to innovate a real solution. Because as you said, it's such a difficult landscape um, incorporating as a social enterprise. So we are essentially a business, but we have a social purpose um, and we allocate profits to our social impact, which is free legal advice to victims of modern slavery. So it, it's a lot to fit in one bag. Um, I think finding the balance between our, our offering and our intentions. So coming from a, a human rights background myself, but also um, learning how exactly we are fitting this into a very commercial space, which, because it is a very commercial um, ESG is, is everything on the radar at the moment and it's a huge indicator of whether a deal um should go ahead and I think it's been you know adapting exactly what what we want and being able to be flexible enough to change 
um, how we execute that in according to um, what's going to fit. Because I think the difficulty, especially um, as many founders might see, is you you have an initial vision of how something might be, but then when you put it into practice, certain things might might change a bit. But you have to stay true to exactly your your mission at the end of the day and and keeping that at the heart of the concept so I think that's kind of one one bag of of things that we face and obviously being a business ourselves is the the fundamental business model being able to you know um engage clients um obtain investment and learning um, how to how to run the business, how to grow as a business, how we see it scaling. And those are the kind of things that we've, you know, spent a lot of time building a solid foundation that we hopefully will be able to to grow and um, scale to to our potential in the next hopefully few years. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the startups come with all kinds of challenges and uh, resilience is actually a common trait that we've seen across um, so many social enterprises and the teams behind them, um, because a lot of this work is emotionally taxing beyond the building of an organization. Um, When you're working with vulnerable communities and doing the work that you're doing within this space in particular, I imagine that comes with a huge emotional component. And I know that a lot of people that may be listening to this or may have been presented with the idea of, you know, slavery is still very prevalent in today's age, um, but they probably find it difficult to comprehend what slavery looks like and um, often put their trust in policies and legislation to protect these people and keep um, keep businesses from engaging in such activities. So I'm just curious to hear just based on your own journey and the challenges that you've encountered and the stories that you've probably heard from um, the communities that you've been fighting for, are there any particular moments that have um really kind of um, impacted your work and brought you closer to this cause um, in any way that you um, would like to share with our listeners today? One thing to to see the legislation, as you say, and to see how, you know, for example, this could be implemented, but to see it in practice is is really something something else obviously I I wouldn't be able to to go into any kind of confidential case material but I could say there are instances of that you see and you find that are are shocking in terms of you know how much you would expect somebody to be paid as a minimum how many hours they should be working which they are not and um the maybe the constraints in which they've been put in, which which would be alarming to anyone. And I think being able to, one, take a step back and, and see that as a human being, as opposed to, you know, just being this corporate entity that, you know, they're another employee or worker on the books, but saying, okay, we need to now do something about that. And I think that is a huge driver in in what we do and what we stand for as an organization. So, so yeah, I think um, there have 
definitely been stories which, which have you know impacted us on us dearly of course and in terms of just the communities themselves that are being impacted are there some communities that are more vulnerable than others in saying that there there are various vulnerable communities obviously we're looking at um, protected groups anyway that might be more vulnerable um children for example women um communities which might have a protective characteristic by by way of race we're looking at if in other spaces other jurisdictions perhaps caste is another thing caste-based discrimination is um and slavery is something which um particularly looks at um exploiting people within their particular caste and subjecting them to particular things because they are of that caste um so that as well as racial prejudice so i think looking at discrimination as a whole it, it is a huge cause as and i would say a cyclical cause because it's causing modern slavery and then it's also consequential effects because of that and it, then it kind of it's hard to break that chain so what I would kind say, of effects so I think consequences, we're looking at, you know, if they've been subjected to working in a forced capacity, but they have economic factors that they're impoverished, for example, they need some work to sustain and they will be happy to do anything to get something. And they are not aware of their rights. So it's like, how do they then break out of that chain without any other force, right? So if they're not one aware of their rights, they haven't had enough educational training, um, they are imposed upon various um, terms within their contract. They, the wage rate is, is horribly low, for example, and they have no other alternative. They might then be forced to stay in that environment as opposed to looking for an alternative which they might not see as viable or in other cases of you know actually being bonded to their employer not being able to do so and and where immigration comes into play so for example if they have come into this this country and there is a huge um, scope of whether they have been, for example, their paperwork is not legitimate and they would be worried that if they would then come forward with these problems, they they would be at, on a breach of immigration law and, you know, deported. So, so that's an issue. And whether it's actually trafficking or if it's smuggling, because whether they consented to to come into this country sh should be negligible really if it's trafficking because there are the victim but here it, there is a fine line in the way that's really implemented by um in policy and actually put into force and enforced through case law it is something else and it's something which actually trips up a lot of victims and puts them in a wrong category where they might be held in you know a detention center incorrectly which is really, really devastating. Yeah, I mean, it's when you hear some of the stories, it's 
really distressing um, and really heartbreaking to hear that, you know, such situations still exist today. I mean, you know, you would hope slavery is a thing of the past. And even when we look back to the past, it's very hard to look at what so many different communities uh, went through and the fact that they even had to endure some really horrific um, circumstances. Um, but you would hope that, you know, humanity has progressed to a point where, you know, we've moved on from um, treating humans in this way. Um, but it's it's just shocking that we haven't made um, the level of advancement that you would hope from um, our civilization at this stage. What are some things that you know, individuals like myself or um, consumers, I know that you said consumers play a big role in this movement and the fight against modern slavery. What are some steps that we can all take to actually eradicate this from um, not on a national level, but on a global level? Yeah, I think the scope is, is really big. And I would say that because as you said, consumers do have a lot of power and in terms of the the platforms that are available these days, um, social media, um, you know, various platforms can raise awareness. And I think that's the first step because you can't solve a problem that you know nothing about. And because people are more in the dark about these issues, they aren't being targeted. So I think the first step would be an, a greater movement on educating on this being something that's more in the pipeline, more on the agenda. Um, and even if that is, you know, posting, sharing more things um, on an individual level and as, and as, you know, these platforms that we have access to that grows and that has, I think, a huge amount of weight and in terms of consumers as individuals, we we recognize ethical trade is, is important and people know that, but they maybe don't know ex- the extent of exploitation that's occurring. But actually turning around and saying, um, you know, I will buy from this brand because I know that they've taken particular steps, whether it's they have a compliance statement on their website, I can see that they are a ethical brand, whereas other ones which, you know, may not have those things in place, being more mindful of how that product was created and understanding, you know, what we value as humans, as you say, uh, being able to treat everybody equally is so important. So having maybe a stance on, on that as individuals and being able to say, yeah, these are these are good um, brands which I should look to towards buying from because I know where they've come from, and I think that's that's going to become more and more the case as things develop. And um, yeah, because you know businesses are dictated by their market and by how consumers are driving that. So being able to do that determines how sustainable that brand will be and and as more brands do it other competing brands will push for that as well because they want to stay competitive and I think in 
in that kind of motion, the individual does have a lot of power in, in changing that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess where um where the bit that I often have trouble with is a lot of the movement work is very much focused on presenting the financial benefit to corporations that, um, you know, in terms of uh, when you look at it from a, an optics perspective, that it looks good for a business to actually take these steps and um, be considered as ethical um, and present itself as one at the forefront of leading the movement, when a lot of it tends to kind of lean more towards on greenwashing, right? Um, and so when there's not enough um, holistic work being done where companies are actually changing things internally and uh, dismantling systemic um, exploitation, um, it, it's very difficult to see those situations from rising up again and appearing in small um, pockets across the supply chain, right? So I'm just interested to hear um, what can we do beyond um, trying to become uh, or trying to appear as better organizations, but actually truly leading better organizations? Yeah, I think it's a it's a difficult one in the sense that commercial entities are driven by their their kind of bottom line how they look how they sustain but in actual fact as you've rightly mentioned it should actually be more than a checklist it should be these are actually being changed internally. We're looking at a holistic approach. We are implementing things to make sure that there isn't, or we are doing everything we can to to prevent this from occurring, even if we can't um, look at alleviating anything ultimately without you know being the person on the ground, checking everything all the time. I think to do this, you know, what we are doing at Supply and Chain, and I can speak um, of of how we are assisting, is making sure that it's not just a checkbox exercise. And I think that is so, so important. Um, understanding the the audit, which is, which is a huge part of ensuring that, you know, they are taking steps and measures um, to, to understand their supply chain in a little bit more detail and then actually as you said holistically implementing policies um do providing for in their statement because essentially a, a company is governed by its policies by um you know its articles of association how how um you know the the statement is done in terms of these particular things and um you know putting in place certain um, you know, we would would put materials, mitigation action items so that they could then um, be looking at what would happen if somebody wasn't compliant within their supply chain. Really, they should be looking at, you know, terminating that relationship. So these are these are things that we would put in place. And then obviously looking, put it going into a bit more detail, giving a more um legal opinion on it and I think it's more of a holistic package in that it it targets different areas of not only the law but you know what are the key problems that companies are facing in terms of 
you know, that their standards and their employment rights and how because supply chains are so global, inevitably there are going to be suppliers in different parts of the world which have different jurisdictions, which then you may need to look at, you know, these are our terms, these are our standards here in this jurisdiction. So we want to set that as a baseline. And I think once they start to do that, and once there is a fear that they may lose this work from a, you know, Western organization, for example, because they are too scared um, of their reputation and how that might affect the bigger brand um, that will be more in place. So, so in, in doing that, they are, they are making them comply and making them adhere to these rules. Um, and a part of, as I've said, education and training is is so important because if these people don't know what they're looking for, what modern slavery is, they can't they can't stop it, they can't pre- prevent it, and they can't um, train others on it. So really, what we do as well is this e learning, which um, you know clients can can opt into our services and get that, and that could then be accessed by um people within their organizations but also you know um their suppliers so they get that level of training as well which is which is really key for them to to understand what to look for what to do and um to to give you a more holistic picture of this is not just a checkbox we're actually looking at how to embed this into your organization I'd love to hear what are your hopes and dreams for supply and change and how do you imagine the next five years for this space? ESG is something that's very much on everyone's mind at the moment in terms of the policy coming into play in 2015 and as I said earlier it really getting teeth in 2021 with compliance becoming mandatory. I see it growing. I see the case law becoming more extensive on this. We see how it is that the course court, you know, um, addresses issues of modern slavery, what it does with different companies, and those form precedents which then create a wave of, oh, right, so we need to be careful that doesn't happen to us um, from a brand, from a business perspective. And then causing a push for them to say, yes, we need to comply, we need to put measures in place to to ensure mon slavery isn't happening. And and obviously that is from a commercial angle where the heart of our business and where we see ourselves is is, you know, as a thought leader in business and human rights and very much a focus on human rights being at the center of our ethos. So I would say for us as a brand and as a business, we um aim to to you know work and expand on our um pro bono work but also to to set roots not only here in the UK but to to scale to you the US market and the Australian market and really to develop our our tech as as we go along and um our um our reach and hopefully spread this very important message to you know prevent wherever possible issues of modern slavery happening and making that more and more um, 
on the on the topic and the discussion and I think you know in the next five years this is going to be a huge huge part of any deal going forward in their you know their as were KYC checks or you know whether anyone wants to go ahead it will be become a term and I do think that's definitely on the agenda of where where this is going. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us on Reinvision Business Nayantara. It's been really um, enlightening to hear more about this space and the important work that you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure being on this podcast today. So you can find out more about Supply Unchained um, via our website, which is supplyunchained.co.uk. You can also get in touch through email, which is info at supplyunchained.co.uk. We're also on LinkedIn, we're on Instagram and Twitter. So you can reach us there at Supply Unchained too. So we can, I'm sure, provide more details in the bio on, on the specific links, but hopefully you will get in touch with us to find out more. Thank you so much. It's been so amazing having you on. We'll be back on the first Wednesday of every month with a new episode. To ensure you don't miss out, please subscribe to Reinvision Business on your favorite podcasting platform, whether that is Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or something else. If you've enjoyed our episode, please leave us a five-star review so that others can learn about Reinvision Business. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter with the handle UpEffect for updates on the next episode. Until next month.